You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Uh, Let's join together in prayer. God, as we come together today, this 4th of July, we come together as a community that is both thankful for the freedoms and the privileges that we have, but that is attunely aware of the cost that's been involved in defending the way that we do things here in the United States. The difficult history that we have as a country with indigenous people and people of color. And so we celebrate freedom. We celebrate a space of being able to express who we are freely and openly. And yet we also recognize um, that even in this country, those freedoms aren't equally shared. Certainly in this world, those things that we value so deeply and that we believe are a part of our human nature um, are not equally shared. So we are mindful today that we have so much work to do. While we can be thankful for the journey we've come, let us not forget the mistakes that we've made along the way. Let us be people of wholeness and healing, recognizing our own mistakes, recognizing the ways we contribute to systems of injustice and oppression. And let us be stewards of bringing greater inclusion, greater freedom to all the people in your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. This morning, I wanted to share with you um, as a piece of liturgy, um, this is... a a declaration of interdependence. So as we celebrate um, essentially the declaration of independence here in the United States, we also affirm um, here the fundamental interdependence that we have with citizens of our community, uh, our country and this entire planet. So this is a declaration of interdependence and the first declaration of interdependence was written by Will Durant in 1944. I'm not gonna be reading all of that this morning because uh, being written in 1944, it is still uh, quite dated in its language and though it strives for inclusion, um, it doesn't do the greatest job in our present context today. But what I wanted to read today is Um, a declaration of interdependence that was put together by Melanie Bacon uh, more recently. And 
So I will share this here in the chat if you'd like to see that as well. Perfect, see Okay. Great, and um, yeah, so, um, so I'll read these words. Um, these can be um, our declaration together. And just like all liturgy, not every aspect of this may apply to you, and that is perfectly fine. This is um, a piece of liturgy that uh, I think embodies who we are in the community that we've come to create together. Um, so uh, hear these words, Declaration of Independence by Mallory Bacon, Melanie Bacon. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all life is interconnected and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights and responsibilities. That among these are presence, compassion, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights and responsibilities, we open our minds and hearts to the needs of others and our own true needs. We hear the sound of the living universe in our ears and add our voices to the song. We live every moment with awareness of the purity and power of existence. And for the support of this declaration, we pledge to each other our love and our breath. For the freedom of the one is the freedom of the all, and the pain of the one is the pain of the all. The breath of the one is the breath of the all, and the breath of the all is the breath of God. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Uh, as Bob mentioned, we'll be taking communion. So if you haven't been able to grab something, go for it now. Um, for this communion, I will be reading uh, something written by Megan Ruby Wagner, um, actually just over the last week here. Um, it was in response to um, Nadia Boltz Weber's tweet. Um, I think I shared it, um, hard to keep track, uh, but essentially calling for pastors um, who have an R and are in the act of re uh, rejecting Christian nationalism to remove the American flags from their churches. Oh, yeah, Aaron, I think you shared it, too, and made a note about how that's been a part of our church's history, too. Uh, Aaron, I have some yeah, we've, we've got some stories. We've got, yeah, we've got some, some stories. stories. If anyone ever wants to hear them over a drink or something. Um, but th that led this person to write a liturgy called a liturgy for the flag removers. Um, so I thought it, it was an appropriate liturgy to read this morning here on this day that, as Bob mentioned, comes with complex um, uh, associations and connotations and um, ways that we interpret that, especially as people of God um, that have no border um, nor um, nor. Um, nationalistic creed. So um, hear these words, liturgy for the flag removers, and then we'll take our elements together as one body. God, our Father, meet us in these spaces that are holy and wholly yours. On American soil, yes, but soil that was first Shawnee and Cherokee and Chickasaw. God, our mother, God who crosses borders by night and cradles babies in her arms on the cold floors of detention centers, show us our sins. 
Show us the harm we have done by both our action and inaction. May our hearts break at the families we have torn apart and the neighbors we have abandoned. May our hearts, may our broken hearts move us to tired arms and calloused hands. Holy Spirit, remind us that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. Do not allow us to hide behind flags and banners and disguise atrocity and cruelty and ignorance and selfishness as patriotism. Remind us that you are not an American God, clothed in red, white, and blue any more than you are a Ugandan God, Chinese God, Chilean God, Russian God, Guatemalan God. Remind us of your teachings to love our enemies and turn our cheeks and feed the poor and welcome the stranger to be peacemakers and wound binders and servants. Remind us that you walked in sandals, not cowboy boots, and that pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps was not part of the Beatitudes. There's no space for manifest destiny in the good news of the gospel. Lord, have mercy on we who have sought hollow solace in the shadow of the flags that stand imposters on sanctuary stages. May we not litter our sacred spaces with the flags that we do not, ought not, worship. Christ, have mercy on our American dreams. Replace them with hunger for righteousness and justice. May we chase after peace in lieu of picket fences. Amen. And it is with that calling upon each of us that I invite you to take what it is you have is the bread, I have Cheez-Its, and the cup, I have white wine, because it is a holiday and Karis made it for me. <laughs> um, and take together the bread and wine at your own pace. someone might be doing announcements today <laughs> yeah that's me sorry i was just figuring out my little situation here um well good to see you guys again uh will uh just wanted to just let you know a couple of things happening um coming up here at central like i said i'm glad that we're having opportunities to get together and uh the next things going on here on the 17th which is a saturday Dan and Angie are going to be leading us on a hike. So, of course, more information to come on Facebook and uh, here in service. So tune in for more details there. Uh, and then the following day on the 18th is going to be our first in-person service uh, here at Central. So um, we'll be following all of the um, COVID restrictions in place to help keep us uh, safe as we're doing that and meeting indoors. But we're looking forward to uh, connecting with you and uh, more details to come there as well. Uh, last thing, the following Sunday is the last Sunday of the month on the 25th, and we'll be meeting at Aaron and Emily's again for a brunch after our virtual service here. Um, so if there's other things that you'd like to do or uh, I'd like to get together with people and want to have an opportunity for others to join together, let us know and we can share those things. Um, but uh, it's good to have the chances to see you guys um, in person when you're feeling safe to do so.
Thanks, Bob. Anybody have any prayer requests, uh, words of thanksgiving, anything they want to share this morning and have us recognize or, or pray about? You can unmute or uh, you can put it in the chat. Hey, hey, Max, I meant to ask the other day, and I just, I guess I'll ask now, how is um, Holly, Joel's, Joel's wife? I was about to consider saying something there. Uh, they're actually here last night. Um, one of the things, the only ways that they, uh, you know, a lot of people have been reaching out to see what they do, and they're like, can people just please invite us over? Because, like, we just need to get out of our house and we can't host. Um, so they actually came over. They're, they're, uh, she's doing, she's doing well um they are getting this the runaround um in terms of all the neurosurgeons they meet with say that she should do chemo and the oncologist they met with said that she should do surgery so nobody nobody really wants to do anything with it um so they're uh they have a couple more co consultations in the upcoming week they have to pay totally out of pocket um because that's our messed up insurance system um, but they're going to a, a USC on Tuesday, City of Hope on Wednesday um, to get some further consultations um, and hopefully get a, a plan for treatment. Um, as you can imagine, it's quite the whirlwind just in terms of going back and forth of not having uh, an actual plan of treatment. Um, so they're they're making it work though. They uh, she's 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 in relatively good health. She has some noticeable trembling um, and um, some ba some balance issues, um, but uh, other than that, feeling feeling quite um, good. So that's that's um, that's a good sign. Um, yeah, their son is just a little older than Theo, so he and Theo played in the backyard for a while yesterday, and uh, had a good time. Thanks for asking. Just remember Holly and our prayers. God, we lift her up and and. Um, continue to commit her uh, into your hands and in the hands of the physicians that know how to best care for her. But I, we give thanks for friends like Max and Karis and others in their life. They can be a support right now, but we just, we just pray for this financial situation and the fact that they got to pay out of pocket and, and all of that. We just ask for relief and aid in that regard. Um, in Jesus name. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Max. Um, anybody else this morning have something they want to bring up? Looks like there's some stuff in the chat. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see it. Thank you. Um, Cassandra says, um, this is addressed to everyone, so it's okay if I read it out loud. We're still really struggling in our little family. We've made some plans to try something different and she just needs prayer <clears throat> that all goes as planned and that we get the additional supports we've been looking for as well. Yeah, we pray that Cassandra and her family get the support that they need and that it goes as best as possible as they planned. Um, and we just pray for that whole family, Cassandra, her husband um, and, her, and her children. Um, we just pray for their health and well-being um, holistically in Jesus name, amen. I don't know if there's anything else we can do, Cassandra. All right. Um, 
With that, Max, I'll hand it over to you, I think. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm going to be playing a reading of uh, Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes. I think we read it at some point in the past uh, year, um, but especially today, it feels like a good one. It's um, it's um, it's through a, it's called the Loft Literary Center, um, and the person reading is Denez Smith. Um, so a good reminder for us on this Sunday, of all Sundays especially, so I'll get that going here. Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free, equality in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me nor freedom in this homeland of the free say. Who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor, white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream, beaten yet today. Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead. I am the poorest worker, bartered through the years yet. I am the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a surf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone, in every furrow turn that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I am the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home, for I am the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain in England's grassy lay, and torn from black Africa's strand to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me, surely not me. 
The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has yet been and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on people's lives. We must take back our land again. America, oh yes, I say it plain. America was never America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be out of the rake and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft, of stealth, and lies, we, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Amen. There, there's your, there's your meditation for today. All right. Thanks, Max. So this being the 4th of July, I thought we could take a look at the unique history of Christianity in America. I'm talking, of course, about the Christianity that's become synonymous with evangelicalism today which is basically what I think most people mean when they talk about American Christianity. However, American Christianity is much broader than that, right? Uh, as American Christians ourselves, for the most part, from a progressive persuasion, we too represent a certain segment of American Christianity. So it's not fair to say or to describe evangelicals only as you know, American Christianity, there's the scare quotes I shouldn't be using, according to my old speech professor. Uh, you know, it's, so it's not fair to describe evangelicals only as, you know, American Christianity as if we're, as if we somehow are not an, an expression of, uh, not an American expression of Christianity too. We are, right? And it would be interesting to discuss the American roots of our progressive post-evangelical Christianity. And maybe we can do that in the discussion portion in a few minutes. But for our purposes today, we're going to focus more on the roots of evangelicalism, which, again, is the version of American Christianity that is most prominent and what most people think of when they think of American Christianity. So where did this come from? How did it develop? What are its roots and underlying values and ideology? And I'm getting a lot of this today from our friend Tad DeLay, who has written a lot about the roots of evangelicalism. He's a good friend of ours. Um, he's, a good, he's a great scholar. 
Uh, he's done a lot of research into this and, and written some good books. And if you're interested in reading some more, I can direct you to some of those. One of the most influential things on the development of American Christianity was the frontier itself. Uh, and this the kind of pioneer mentality that developed on the frontier, but this kind of rugged individualism that took that took shape on the frontier, which said, you know, we can create our own communities, our own way of life, our own churches, our own interpretations of scripture, our own faith, as it were. We, we don't need some big institution or human authority telling us what to do, uh, which is in part a good thing. It's a very American way of thinking, but in part, it's, it's a good thing too. I, I don't want to make today all about how terrible American Christianity is. Certainly today is going to be a critique, but you know, such innovative thinking gave rise to some great expressions of Christianity too, in some ways gave rise to progressive critiques, but built into this way of thinking, this, this rugged individualism, this kind of frontier mentality was a kind of aversion to expertise and a belief in the perspicuity of scripture, which would become very American. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that early Americans loved the often untrained revival preacher. They loved the charismatic circuit preachers, which would ride from town to town and preach in the various meeting halls and public squares, often with a lot of bravado and intensity, but without any formal ministry or seminary training or education, or, or, even, or even really any accountability. And people came to like that style of preaching and religion more. It felt more American. It was like everything else on the frontier, driven by innovation and self-determination. Now, keep in mind, there was also a real shortage of trained clergy on, on, out on the frontier, and even in more settled areas, you know, people often had to rely on whoever was available, even if they had no education. This led to a lot of charlatanism <laughs> and, and people interpreting scripture in some really interesting ways. It, it led to the creation of a lot of new denominations. A lot of people don't know that the Seventh-day Adventists, the Disciples of Christ, the Churches of Christ, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormon Church, you know, all have their start kind of on, on the American frontier. Uh, again, when you, have, when you have a culture that values rugged individualism and, and self-determination and personal revelation, personal revelation over and above education and, or, or institutional forms of Christianity, uh, when, you, when you have a culture that values you know, personal revelation over education and, and critical thinking, this is kind of what you get. You get a lot of new, new movements, right? It also led to what's called the doctrine of perspicuity, which is another very American kind of evangelical idea to this day. Perspicuity, of course, means clear and obvious. And it's this idea, the doctrine of perspicuity is this idea that the Bible is clear and obvious uh, or clear and easy to understand. You don't need to understand the historical context of, of what was written. You don't need to understand who wrote it and why. You don't need to be trained to interpret the Bible properly because the Bible interprets itself, so we're told, whatever that means, right? A lot of the early circuit preachers, revivalists, and evangelists during what was called the First and Second Great Awakening, which were these you know, profoundly um, influential religious movements in the, in the 18th and 19th century, a lot of the 
preachers and teachers during these great awakenings taught this idea of the perspicuity of, of scripture. Um, this idea that the Bible interprets itself and that personal revelation can trump everything else. The Bible's, the Bible's easy to understand. You just need to read it, right? Uh, you don't need to interpret it. The Bible interprets itself, this kind of thinking. A lot of people in, in early American Christianity held to this doctrine because again, you know, uh, it's very individualist. It's very empowering of the self. It's very much uh, like everything else sort of on this, on the frontier and in, in the pioneer world, right? This is where we get the line. I'm sure you've heard this before. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. You, I'm sure you've heard that before. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's a very American evangelical idea that's rooted in that kind of frontier Christianity. But the most important historical feature of American Christianity and the feature that would really come to, defi to define it most is what's called the doctrine of chosenness, the doctrine of chosenness, which is this idea that America is a chosen nation with a divine destiny to fulfill. The, this, this idea really began with the English colonists that first settled here. They were, of course, deeply religious folks, many of them separatists and Puritans. Separatists and Puritans were radical reformers of the Church of England during the 16th and 17th century. They believed that the Church of England had not purified or reformed itself enough when it split from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. So you had Puritans and separatists who wanted to purify, thus, thus the name Puritan, they wanted to purify the Church of England completely of its Catholicism. And because they could not do this completely, some of them separated themselves from the Church of England. These became called separatists, right? Uh, and they were persecuted for this. They were denied work, denied property, denied education, sometimes even arrested because it was illegal to not attend the, the state church in England at that time. So these, these Puritans and separatists voyaged here to live out their faith and their way of life in peace. What's important to understand about them more than anything else is their concept of chosenness. They believe they were chosen by God to come here and establish a kind of utopian, God-fearing community or, or nation. This belief of theirs would come to, uh, would, would become their most enduring legacy, really. Uh, and it lives on today and defines so much of evangelicalism. And to be clear, they didn't invent this idea of chosenness. It actually originates in scripture where it says in many different places that the Jews are a chosen people, right? That, that Israel is a chosen nation, that God rules over history and the nations choosing who's in power and who's not, who's blessed and who's not, who is saved and who's not. One can find this doctrine of chosenness throughout the scriptures in both testaments, really. And, and therefore, you know, throughout both, both Judaism and Christianity, both religions. So, and I find this really problematic, obviously. This was, of course, picked up by the European settlers that came here and appropriated that narrative or that doctrine for their own purposes. One cannot understand the early American cultural ideologies of manifest destiny and the white man's burden without understanding first 
the underlying doctrine of chosenness that really sits at the heart of it all. Manifest destiny was, of course, this belief that white folks were divinely ordained to expand westward and tame and settle the frontier, displacing or subjugating, and of course, uh, sometimes killing the native peoples along the way. The, the white man's burden was a similar ideology that said European Christians had a burden or a calling to both convert and civilize the other races and cultures it came across uh, in, in its colonizing of the new world. But again, these ideologies were rooted in this deeper and older ideology. And to be frank, this theological metaphysical conviction called the doctrine of chosenness, which is, which is this, you know, it's a pretty insidious idea that informs a lot of the politics on the right even today. It, it's the reason why so many evangelical pastors can defend even now uh, and support someone like Trump, someone as immoral as Trump. It, it doesn't matter how immoral he is, how many women he sexually assaulted, how many uh, times he's lied, etc. That that's something a lot of liberals and leftists don't understand. We keep waiting for for Trump to do something so terrible that even his most adamant Christian supporters can't ignore. But that's a total misunderstanding. It doesn't matter how terrible he is because he's God's man, he's chosen. And that's all that matters. This is how dangerous the doctrine of chosenness is. It means never having to second, second guess yourself. It means never having to you know, second guess your cruelty. Um, it means never having to second guess anything because if it's God's will, then it can't be cruel or it can't be unjust. That's the real power of this idea. It functions as the ultimate get out of jail free card. It also functions as a way of avoiding having to think at all. When you believe that you and your people and your way of life is chosen, you don't need to consider other points of view. You don't need to listen to anybody. You don't need to question anything because you're chosen and that's all that matters. This is really the dark side of this doctrine of chosenness and what makes it so dangerous. It, it literally turns ignorance and naivete into a virtue. And this doctrine of chosenness is really the most defining aspect of American Christianity and has been so since the landing at Plymouth Rock. Those devout early settlers compared their experience of coming here to that of the Israelites in the Exodus narrative. Just as the Hebrews needed to be liberated from Egyptian oppression and traverse a dangerous desert to a promised new land, so the settlers of this country saw their story of being oppressed in Europe and needing to, to escape it by traversing the dangerous Atlantic Ocean, right, kind of like a desert wilderness, the, the need to traverse the Atlantic Ocean to a, to a promised new land. They saw their story as being just like the Exodus story. And just like the Exodus story, the Puritans and separatists believed it was God's will for them to displace, subjugate, and even kill the native people of this continent. Just as the Hebrews were ordered by God, supposedly, to slaughter the Canaanites. Because again, they were chosen. And chosenness is all that matters. When you're chosen, you can literally get away with murder. It's really important to understand that that narrative and that sense of chosenness has been passed down like a birthright to this day uh, to white evangelicals. 
that there are tens of millions of evangelicals today who really believe that God gave this continent to white European Christians in order to create the greatest nation ever. That's, that's actually what a lot of people are celebrating today on July 4th. It's why a lot of churches today are having patriotic services, you know, complete with singing the national anthem and waving flags in the sanctuary. And that's why countless sermons being preached this morning are all about this and, and how this is a Christian nation with a divine destiny to fulfill, you know, and, and we've got to return America back to God, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing has really changed in that regard over the last 200 years or so. That belief is, of course, inherently racist, right? This idea that God gave this land to white European Christians, that's, that's really a racist idea. But it also explains the patriarchy, the, the sexism, the homophobia, and the anti-science bias in evangelicalism today. Think about it. It's, it's all based on, the, based on this idea of chosenness, that, that some genders are chosen and some aren't. Some sexual orientations are chosen and some aren't. Some races are chosen and some aren't. Some cultures are chosen and some aren't. Some religions are, of course, chosen and some aren't. Revelation is, of course, chosen over reason. And the Bible is, of course, chosen over science. The, the, this fantasy of chosenness, and it is a fantasy. This fantasy of chosenness really explains so much of what we see in evangelicalism and throughout American church history. But let's be clear, all of this is really about power, right? It's all about power and the need to wield power over others and to dominate and to control the culture. Chosenness is really about power, always been so. Yeah, it's couched in theology, but it's really about power and, and racism and, and the economics of all that. Chosenness also really explains why the church in America today uh, remains as powerful as it is compared to other parts of the world, like Western Europe, where the church is all but dead. I don't know if you know that, but I mean, Western, Western Europe is a pr pretty much a post-Christian, you know, culture. Um, and I think the reason for this difference between Europe and the United States really comes down to this old idea and this foundational idea that America is a chosen nation and has a divine destiny to play on the world stage. I think that's a very uniquely American idea that is still very powerful today, still very much a part of our culture and the fabric of society. And I, I'm not sure it's going away anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's, that's my talk this morning on this July 4th about the history of American Christianity. I am sure that that sparked some thoughts in some of you, and I'm, I'm curious to hear those now. I've uh, got some discussion questions, but I just want to open it up at this point. Does anybody want to react, respond to anything I said, the doctrine of chosenness, the doctrine of perspicuity of scripture, um, anything? I'm curious, what are ways that you see all this history at work in the American church today or within the greater American culture? What stands out to you? Um, how does uh, American Christianity influence the culture today in various ways in your, in your experience?
Uh, something stood out to me that you said was uh, that's Tia, by the way. Um, hey, JP. That uh, there's a kind of pride in ignorance of other yeah. religions, uh, ways of thinking, uh, education, and as a, uh, it almost seems like if it's not according to the Bible, based on that interpretation, then it's obviously of the devil, so not worth knowing. And um, I think it's, it's strange when, uh, I think maybe missionaries here encountered other ways of being Christians. At the same time, um, I feel like, cause my, my family was, um, there was missionaries, I think from Canada, a Christian Missionary Alliance and things like that. I don't remember. There, oh, there yeah. were different ones the CMA, different, yeah. Yeah, different ones in different regions. So I'm not sure which one it was, but um, until probably, I don't know if, if, which culture probably, but I think it was America probably produced the most Bibles in the 20th century, just oh, from yeah. an industrial perspective. And so a lot of that um, contributed to exporting that notion that America was yes. a source, right? So exporting, you know, the physical Bible, obviously, but then the, um, the cultural material around the church. And so this attitude that you're calling American, I've actually seen it now in many other places about Christianity, um, sometimes America included, sometimes not. And so um, you see that a lot of, um, ethnic wars in certain places now are essentially with this kind of theology that was exported. And it, it where there used to be ethnic conflicts, it's actually more religious. So you see as Christians against Muslims or Christians against uh, indigenous kind of practices. Um, and a lot of it is just a refusal to learn or grow and be enlightened because you know the answer is in the book. Right. right. And we're chosen and you're not. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's yeah. And you're talking about how ignorance and naivete have been turned into virtues within that version of Christianity. That's that conservatism, that fundamentalism that America has exported so well. And it's interesting that oil money actually was really in the 20th century. What really was behind the creation of and the, the publication of Bibles like the Schofield Reference Bible, which pushed uh, dispensationalism, which was a version of Christian fundamentalism around the world. It was entirely funded, almost entirely funded by the Milton brothers here in Los Angeles who were, you know, big oil. And uh, it's interesting that big oil is what really pushed fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism around the world in the, in the 20th century. Anyway, good point, JP. Thank you for sharing that. Other thoughts today, Christian imperialism or, uh, American church history. I was just going to say, I think, I think it's really important <laughs> to be able to name to how blended and confused the concepts of Christianity and capitalism have become in America, right? Like there, especially, I mean, for a long time, but then especially through obviously the mid 20th century with the red scare and all that stuff, like the church became synonymous with 
capitalism, right? So the church suddenly was like, hey, the church's purpose is to have you find a good job and make as much money as you can so you can give back to the church and and any other competing ideas, right? Which suddenly became workers' rights, like movement towards, you know, universal health care, like all these things that are ostensibly and from everybody from the outside, just good things that help people suddenly become like anti-Christian. And suddenly there's this association between, you know, if, you, if you're, you know, too progressive, you're clearly not a Christian, completely irrespective of theological views, but just like political, social, economic theory, um, and and just the the fear that comes associated with like Marxism and communism and socialism, all these things that get thrown around when you're talking about like having having theological conversations. Um, and I think that's that's a uniquely American thing, and it helps you know kind of um, explain some of the some of the things you noted too, right? About how it's just so quickly has become this like you know, the cult of personality and the pieces of, of American culture and society that seems so, to so clearly run against Jesus's teachings and the gospels and Christianity that have been blessed and stamped as, nope, this is, this is American Christianity. And this is the only true Christianity when usually the rest of the world is like, this looks nothing like (laughs) Yeah. Any other version of Christianity, it is it is uniquely American version of Christianity, and it's and it's super damaging. But yeah, I mean, I think these these are yeah, this is like one of those holidays when that comes to the forefront, right? It's like, well, you're not a you're not a Bible believing Christian if you're not setting off fireworks and drinking Bud Lights and grilling and grilling meat. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> but there's so many people that are like, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. Like you're like the joke cake, right? I mean, that's it's yeah. so intertwined that it's 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 really difficult to to separate yeah. out, and which makes a lot of those conversations tough. Oh, it's a civic religion. I mean, that's really what it is. It's you know, it's amazing how people are tied in emotionally to it as much as any other religion. You know, yeah, good point, Max. Other thoughts today. I'm curious to hear your thoughts um, about how we progressive post-evangelical Christians um, are still tied to American church history and, and are an expression of American Christianity. Because I think in some ways we are. <clears throat> um, in what ways do you think we're still a very American expression of Christianity? I have some thoughts about that, but I'm curious if, if anybody else um, sees that too. The way that I see us as being still very much a part of that history is that, you know, we define so much of who we are as progressive post-evangelical Christians as a reaction against that history, right? And when you're reacting against something, you are, by definition, you know, kind of helplessly tied to it in some ways. You know, the history of progressive Christianity in America, uh, at least as of late, is as much tied to American church history as evangelicalism you know, for, for better or for worse, um, you know, and 
when again, when you're reacting against something, uh, you are in essence influenced by it, right? And tied to it in some ways. Um, and uh, in that sense, we are, you know, maybe even like the, the push to, um, I, maybe push is the wrong word, but the desire to, you know, convert others to, you know, a more healthy Christianity is kind of an evangelical inclination in some ways, you know? I mean, obviously we're not, you know, trying to convert people to a religion here so much, but, you know, like to a new confessional structure of belief, but trying to, you know, help people deconstruct and to convert, to deconvert from unhealthy versions of Christianity, still this kind of evangelical mindset maybe in some ways, but we certainly are reacting against, you know, evangelicalism and in that sense are deeply an American expression of Christianity in some way. And may, maybe there's something about that rugged individualism and pioneer, you know, frontier mentality that we are, you know, blazing a new trail and um, reinventing, um, saving Christianity even. I think there's some American things about all that. Anybody else think that way or see that? Rodney, I see you nodding a little bit. <laughs> not, not, to, not to make you, force you have to talk, but anyway. I think like what you're saying to me sounds just Protestant. Yeah. Yeah. That it, you're right. It is. Go on. Yeah. So it, um, I, I find it difficult to separate because there's, you know, the Protestant and then the lineage through England and obviously the, the, the colonial period and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I just from my perspective, I, I don't, I don't see that as being that different. And, um, you know, I, I personally pause whenever I get this sense from a Christian, because I mean, that's where I come from. But in general, when, when there's this idea from a group that we're right. Yeah. Like we've, we now have the monopoly on, on truth or something like that. Um, and I can see for the purposes of the sermon, calling that American, but uh, I don't know that that part of it seems a little bit older than that. To oh me. yes, it is yeah. absolutely. So. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, Cassandra, I, I read your comment. I don't blame you for feeling like I kind of hate everyone right now. The more I think about this. <laughs> Yeah, rugged individualism is not sustainable. I don't know about you, but I was raised being told that the the ultimate goal in life is to become independent, right? And to be self-sustainable. And, you know, the idea of depending on anyone else, taking help, you know, as an adult, right, is somehow morally suspect, right? Um, I remember the pastor of the church I worked for in Nashville found out that I was, we were getting some financial help from Emily's parents. And he was like, you know, you got to stop that you need to be independent. And, and it's just kind of like, and it was very much tied into a sort of theology as well, um, which again is very American and um, not Christian at all. I mean, there's something deeply Christian about helping each other, right? Something deeply Christian about being dependent on each other. Who told us that, you know, we should be independent actors and totally self-reliant and all of that stuff. And I find that deeply problematic and not very Christian, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, just look at the last year. Totally, without question. And as I say, it's also not surprising at all that that's how 
the church responds because, you know, we, we need people, we, as the church, the organization and institution, we need people to be independently financially responsible so that they can kick back some of that money. We don't need them to need anyone else, but we need them to need us so they can (laughs) money so that we can keep on being the machine. It's so tied into capitalism. It's it's, it's just, as you've been saying, Aaron, it's, it's impossible to separate. I think part of what else is anger making about this is it's hypocritical. I mean, it's deeply hypocritical on all levels because this idea of, I mean, this is the lie of slavery. It's all like, oh, we're completely rich and we're completely all these things, but all the, we don't pay for any of our labor. So it's like the same, like this lie of you don't need anything and it's self-sustaining. Of course you don't need anything if you're forcing other people to work for you. Like, it's just like, it's, so I think that's part of what makes it so anger inducing. Like the more you think about it is because it's all lies and it's all BS. And I think um, the other thing I was thinking is one of the, sorry, I'm speaking, I should turn my camera on. Um, one of the other things with the, that I found different about progressive the two progressive churches, I've, well, three, two I've attended regularly, um, is there isn't, I don't think that there's a push of an agenda. It's an invitation for people to think, which is different. So yeah. it feels different. So like that, like I'm very, I know where I grew up in this idea that you're supposed to minister to people in this very specific kind of way. You have to and it's not even an invitation and it's kind of like, well, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to die and go to hell, right? Like that's basically it. Like there's no in between. Whereas um, the progressive churches that I've attended, they tend to be more like, here are some ideas. What do you think <laughs> about those? Yeah. Here's what we kind of think about them, but we like to hear what you think about it too. So I, those are just the two things I was thinking about. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Akila. Yeah, that point about uh, your point about capitalism and the hypocrisy of American uh, self-sufficiency uh, is is absolutely anger-inducing, um, especially when so much on the right say that that Trump's for lack I don't mean the pun, but really does champion that idea of self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and all, yet all of these billionaires and big corporations are getting these huge tax breaks and exploiting their workers and completely self-reliant, completely reliant. On, on the exploitation of a, of a kind of underclass. And it's, uh, it's always been so, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's the, the bullshit and the lies are absolutely anger inducing and, and rightfully so. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and it's, I've obviously not fact checked this, uh, but just like seeing things in social media feeds about um, how much wealth was lost in, in the, trillions of dollars by citizens here while the billionaires of the world increased their net worth by billions of dollars during this pandemic year plus is it's just remarkable I mean it just points to how much we've bought into that this is the system and this is how it's supposed to be like we're willingly accepting that that is just reality and it's it's so tragic and we do it at our own expense Yeah. Good stuff.
any other thoughts? I hope you have a great fourth, whatever that means for you and uh, take care out there and uh, look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thanks for being here, everybody, and go in peace. Good to see you all. And just as a, not to leave us in a terribly dark place, I also think <laughs> that what we're doing here is being the church and the hope of the world, that yeah. we think that there is a better way, even as we're figuring it out. So thanks for being here and being present with us in a community that is willing to say that this is not the way the church should be, and this is not the way our country should be. So let's keep doing it. Good to see you Th guys. Thanks, thanks, thanks for softening my, my end there, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Happy 4th of July, all. Enjoy yeah. your tomorrow off if you have it. Yeah. Much love, everybody. Bye-bye now.